trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, this is the place where we encourage clear, independent thought, all the more so during times of crisis. I'm very happy to welcome Caleb Franz, the host of Profiles in Liberty podcast, back to the show. It's our uh, every other week segment of uh, History in Action. Caleb, how are you doing today? I am doing very well, Brian. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. If I, could, if I can get the, the false belief out of my head that spring has actually arrived when, in fact, it's still making up its mind, I'll be fine. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's winter still lingering around. So just when just when I think it's safe, you know, to to go out without a jacket, <laughs> Mother Nature has other ideas. <laughs> it's, I, it's the temp, it's the temptation. Yeah. Now I understand that uh, a favorite figure in American history will be uh, celebrating a birthday here very soon. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a favorite figure, not just in, in American history, but I think between uh, both you and I as well. Um, Thomas Jefferson is uh, it's his birthday on uh, April 13th. Uh, depending on when you listen to this, uh, that date may have passed already, but I think it's very uh, timely and very important to discuss uh, some of his highlights and some of his legacy uh, and just the impact that he left on uh, America, because a lot of people remember him for, obviously, the Declaration of Independence, and he was uh, America's third president. Uh, but outside of that, I feel like he becomes almost a mythological figure, whereas the actual realities of the impact that he had on this country may be a little bit lost to a lot of people. Um, and I think that this is a great opportunity to to shed some light on that. Well, I, I'm a big fan of Thomas Jefferson, uh, primarily for his views on, on liberty and on personal freedom and on limited government. But I'll admit, I've been guilty at times of putting him on a pedestal, maybe borderline deifying him. So uh, tell me right. the good and the bad. What What would you say are the important things we should remember about Jefferson? Yeah, I think really when you look at America as as a whole, uh, you know, you have uh, all these monumental figures. You have your your George Washingtons and your James Madisons um, around that founding era. But I, I really don't think that any uh, of those figures can claim to uh, properly represent the the spirit or the uh, mission statement or the ethos. Uh, of the United States the way it was intended to be as this classically liberal nation. This is the first time, really, that a nation, at uh, at least to this scale, uh, has ever been founded on these ideas of, of, of liberty and, and of independence. And yes, there were some, some issues at the time uh, when, uh, when uh, the Declaration of Independence came out that uh, was still lingering around. From, from the old world, like the issue of slavery is probably most predominant. But Thomas Jefferson had the foresight to be able to look at what this country could become one day, probably better than anyone else, even among his, fa- uh, his fellow founders uh, in that generation. I think he uh, better understood uh, just what America was capable of becoming uh, more than anyone else. 
I think one of the things I admire most about Thomas Jefferson was he had some very uh, very good foresight. For instance, I know that uh, one of the things that distinguished his uh, his worldview from that of some of his contemporaries was he was very cautious about uh, consolidation of power in too few hands. I think he would have, had he been around for the Constitutional Convention, he would have been a very dedicated anti-federalist. And I think that time has proved the concerns that he and other anti-federalists expressed were, were likely uh, pretty on target. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's at least in part right. You know, uh, Jefferson supported some sort of uh, revisions, um, and he had even mentioned that uh, he would he would support a passage of the Constitution if it meant in favor of uh, having a Bill of Rights later on. Uh, but the anti-federalists uh, were sure quick to use much of his writings and much of his uh, letters that he had on the on the the Constitution as a whole. Uh, to rally support for their cause uh, as well, and uh, it, I'm sure would be, uh, be uh, very, very favorable to him to kind of stick it to his his arch nemesis uh, Alexander Hamilton if if he were to be able to chip away his his power and authority anymore. Well, you know, Hamilton got the last laugh. The Federalists carried the day, but but uh, you know, I think some of the concerns Jefferson expressed were actually pretty on target. And uh, and in times of despair, when I look at how big the federal government has become and how intrusive it continues to become, I like to go back and say, well, you know what? Thomas Jefferson actually kind of warned about this. He called it a long time ago. In fact, I think he may have actually despaired a little bit toward the end of his life that the experiment, as they sometimes called it, was was not going to, you know, prevail. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that uh, Thomas Jefferson and a lot of the founders uh, became a little wary towards the end of, of their lives, as I'm sure is the case with you know as as people get older, they sometimes become a little bit more cynical, and and I don't think the founding fathers were immune to any of that, um, especially on on the issue of slavery. He uh, sort of not fully gave up, but he understood that this is not going to be something that he was going to be able to accomplish in his lifetime. He knew it was going to have to be a young man's game, uh, and he was no longer a young man uh, around the time the uh, 18 uh, teens and the 1820s uh, started rolling around after his presidency. Uh, he kind of realized that he had done as much as he could uh, and pass the torch to the next generation. And that, I think, is is rather telling of Thomas Jefferson as a person, is that he his hope was really in the future. His hope was really in uh, those who had the, the energy and the life and the livelihood to carry on the spirit of liberty, because he knew that, obviously, as people got older, they got a little bit more uh, cynical, as I mentioned, and they their faith in in mankind's ability to govern themselves diminish a little bit. Uh, but Jefferson's uh, never did. He he understood that maybe this might not be something we can get as much uh, in in my personal lifetime. But I'm confident that these ideas will actually prevail. So tell me, in in your estimation, what is the most valuable contribution Thomas Jefferson? gave throughout uh, his his lifetime well i mean it would uh it would have to be uh probably the declaration of independence uh the probably the most important written document of uh of the of the millennia really 
Um, however, there, there is another one that I am particularly fond of, uh, and that is the uh, Kentucky Resolution of 1798. This was uh, basically Jefferson trying to utilize the full force of the, federal, uh, the federalism, uh, not necessarily federalists in the sense of the party, but federalists in the sense of the, uh, of, of the idea of federalism, yes. Um, and using that to its full extent to try to prevent the federal overreach of the United States government when they were really testing the limits of how far they could take, uh, take their authority even against uh, even against free speech and, and the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution with the Alien and Sedition Crisis of uh, 1798. That, to me, is an episode that really sticks out in American history, and it's one that Jefferson eventually, even though there were uh, some certainly some, some issues along the way, Jefferson did eventually win that battle, uh, and I think that came at probably the most crucial time in our history, uh, and he was able to, in, in that battle, show the country that not only could we pass the torch from one person to another in the seat of the presidency, but also to one political faction to another without it resulting in bloodshed. And I think that is sometimes in a forgotten moment uh, in American history for how, how crucial it actually was, but it really, really did show the staying power that America had uh, a lot more uh, to say than just a, a short little uh, glimpse on the on the footnote of history. I think one of my favorite quotes attributed to him was in a letter to Peter Carr, where he said something to the effect of state a place to a state a case, rather a moral case to a plowman and a professor. And he says the former will decide the case correctly more often than the latter because he hasn't been led astray by artificial rules. And as we (laughs) as we live in this society of rule by experts, I think, wow, (laughs) that, that was that was really on target. You know, that, that's something that I, I really think um, he did really well was he was a remarkably intelligent person, but he always wrote in a way to which he wanted the, the common man to understand exactly why all of these ideas of liberty and uh, of justice and all these things mattered to them, uh, where you, as you contrast that with the likes of someone like Alexander Hamilton, who uh, often wrote to simply impress and sort of overwhelm you. Uh, Jefferson wrote to show that liberty matters to us and it matters to all of us. Caleb, so great to have you on the show. I'm going to have a link to your podcast and encourage people to follow you on social media. Let's talk again soon. Let's do it, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout-out here to my sponsors, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com. Also, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and Govern Your Crypto. Now, one thing I want to point out is I do have sponsor links at my website. That is thebrianhideshow.com. If you want to subscribe to my show notes, I've, I've actually had a couple of different people point this out to me. I'm going to talk to my website guy and, and see if we can streamline the process, make it easier to subscribe. But if you wish to subscribe, just click on show notes any day, doesn't matter which, scroll to the bottom of the show notes, 
There you'll see it. Subscribe. Just a place to put in your email. That's all I ask. And then I'll just drop a copy in your inbox each and every day that I do the show. And you'll have some uh, some great reading material, you know, for your spare time. You know, politicians are really good at pretending, hey, things aren't so bad. Or this is exactly as it's supposed to be. Or I meant to do that. I guess it would be another way they like to put it. Deep down, however, I think most of us realize that something is not right. Or we realize we're being sold a lot of snake oil. Either way, if you've been pondering, well, you know, could totalitarianism happen here? I know some people will firmly say, absolutely not. This is America, land of the free, home of the brave. Where's my flag? Wave it a little harder. It could never happen here. I want to share a list with you from J.B. Shirk. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Ten Steps to Totalitarianism. If you've had a hunch things are feeling a little uh, totalitarian up in here, this should confirm many of those suspicions. How many of these steps do you think we've already galloped past? Asks J.B. Shirk. Number one, destruction of religion. Any belief in a higher power is threatening to the state. If there's a higher law that takes precedence over government orders, then personal morality is a justifiable reason for disobeying the state. It's a competing morality, right? He says America's founding was a product of the Enlightenment's understanding that natural rights and liberties exist apart from and superior to the state's edicts. And these God-given rights, some of which are recorded in the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution as the Bill of Rights, cannot be abridged or usurped by the state. For individual sovereignty and personal liberty to be extinguished, then spiritual belief in a higher power is antithetical to the goals of an overbearing government. How about this one? Gun confiscation. Eminent English jurist uh, William Blackstone succinctly observed, free men have arms, slaves do not. Now, Americans prepared to defend their lives are prepared to defend their freedom. The Democrats have made gun control and confiscation one of their most pressing issues. And that makes that, that says everything, he says, about the direction that we seem to be heading. Have you noticed they've trundled it out again? Just, you know, they're losing their grip on power. They see the coming midterms. They see what is, what's, what's headed their way. There's a reckoning that they are facing with reality at the voting booth. No wonder they want the American citizenry as disarmed as possible. The power's slipping away from them, and they know it. Number three, control over energy. Whether you believe that anthropogenic climate change is an imminent threat or not, this much is indisputable. Energy undergoods all economic activity. Everything from agricultural production and industrial manufacturing to supply transport, shipping, and consumer shopping depends upon a constant supply of energy. If everything bought and sold across the planet were viewed as a pyramid with the most luxurious items sitting at the top, hydrocarbon energy in all its forms provides the, the pyramid's foundation. And as governments seize greater control over hydrocarbon energy, they seize total control over the global economy. Think about that next time you're <clears throat> dumping some $5 gas into your vehicle. Number four on J.B. Shirk's list, control over communication. There's a reason Western governments have begun aggressively attacking free speech as misinformation or disinformation. The power to communicate ideas to the broader public threatens government's monopoly over official truths. Traditional forms of mass communication, newspapers, radio broadcasts, and television shows are operated by so few corporations 
that the state has no problem influencing, if not outright controlling, the information disseminated to the public. In contrast, social media platforms and independent publishing sites permit citizens, in theory, to bypass state censors, regulators, and other information gatekeepers to communicate directly with large numbers of other citizens. See why governments spend so much time targeting free speech as hate speech or harmful information that has to be banned? See why governments pressure ideologically aligned tech companies to censor free speech on their behalf? Can you see why free speech is mocked as an unhealthy citizen obsession? Number five, this one, this one really hits home. Control over money. Just as hydrocarbon energy sustains all economic activity, economic activity is at the heart of all human relations. J.B. Shirk says in a truly free market, people exchange goods and services according to their wants and needs. Now, when those interactions become more frequent, money with agreed-upon value, usually in the form of gold and silver, is used to make exchanges more efficient and to provide a lasting store of value that does not exist when bartering with crops or livestock. So when governments replace gold coins with inherent stored value with paper money, Currency's worth depends entirely upon state decree. Likewise, he says, should governments continue to print money, the value of that money naturally declines. So in effect, the use of fiat currencies allows governments to tax their populations without ever having to take a vote. By controlling the only legal medium of exchange, the government inserts itself into all commerce. Free markets become controlled. How about this? Number six, doomsday fear-mongering. Government power rests upon citizens' acceptance that only the state can tackle big problems. Therefore, government has a natural incentive to invent big problems for its citizens. Rallying around the flag is not limited to times of war. Governments have used COVID-19 to mandate personal health treatments, lock down entire economies, censor dissenting points of view, and keep people monitored or under house arrest. Governments have used apocalyptic tales of climate change to push for greater state control over industry. Governments have declared emergencies over systemic racism and transgender rights to assert control over private companies. And governments insist that misinformation is so deadly that censorship must be embraced. So yeah, fear is a tool for maintaining control, so governments mass-produce fear for their own benefit. Number seven, school indoctrination. Lenin declared, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. So is it any wonder then why schools are on the front lines of all cultural battles? See, it used to be broadly understood in America that parents are instrumental in determining what is taught in local schools. Now the Department of Justice targets parents unhappy with the leftist indoctrination of their children's school curricula. Objecting to the state's infusion of cultural Marxism into education can get one labeled a domestic terrorist. Objecting to schools increasing exposure of young children to transgenderism and graphic sexual content can get one labeled a bigot. And objecting to young white children being taught to feel guilty for the color of their skin is ironically cast as racist. And to top things off, while most Americans have ditched masks as relatively ineffective instruments for diminishing the spread of disease, too many schools are still committed to hardwiring into the little developing minds under their control that the state may force mask compliance and submission on a whim. This one hits hard. Number nine, elimination of family. In a free society, 
The family is the basic unit for self-governance. In a controlled society, the family is a direct threat to the teachings of the state. Again, Lenin, give me just one generation of youth, and I'll transform the whole world. So is it any surprise, then, that marriage between a man and a woman has been under attack for decades? Is it any surprise why motherhood and giving birth to children have been ridiculed as threats to women's liberation, whereas abortion on demand is actually celebrated? Is it any surprise why school teachers so often interfere with the once inviolable parent-child relationship? Or why children are taught to depend upon government services, not their families, for happiness? Okay, we have one more of these mileposts on the road to totalitarianism. We'll touch on that right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. Yep, we're talking food storage. We're talking emergency preparedness. And it's never too late to start. Now, conceivably, there could come a moment where, where it would be too late. But uh, if, you, uh, if you've if you looked around and you've noticed, oh, well, they still have plenty of items in stock. Yeah, it's not too late to get started. If you've already started on your food storage and your emergency preparedness, well, it's uh, never a bad idea to continue to bolster what you're doing. It's not just you and your family that might need help. You might have friends or other family members or neighbors. Bottom line is more self-sufficiency equals more peace of mind. Nobody helps you like lifesavingfood.com. Click the link in my show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, I know I said we had one more. Actually, there's two more of the steps to totalitarianism from J.B. Shirk's amazing article on americanthinker.com. Number nine is elimination of cars. This is a subject that comes up very often when Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is on my show. Why is it we're all being shepherded into electric vehicles and, and, and our, our transportation is more and more being focused on, well, let the government do that for you. Let's, let's provide mass transit or you're not going to need a car for, for the way society is going to be arranged. I don't know about you, but my car is a big part of my personal autonomy, my ability to go when and where I choose. Here's what J.B. Shirk says. He says, The personal automobile revolutionized the world by liberating the individual from both physical and intellectual isolation. Relatively inexpensive vehicles combined with newly paved roads opened up job opportunities, expanded life choices, and promoted the free exchange of ideas across the continent. Is it any surprise, then, that the state pushes so hard for mass public transportation and the elimination of car ownership? Is it any surprise that government safety standards and fuel regulations have made it more difficult for Americans to afford a vehicle when almost every other form of modern technology has decreased in price over the decades? Freedom of movement, like freedom of speech, is a threat to government control. Think about it. The people being taxed so heavily in certain areas, they can always vote with their feet if they have that mobility. If they don't have mobility, they don't have the ability to to move as they choose, shut up and pay your taxes. Hmm, Funny how that works. Number 10 is digital identity tracking. 
what started with Obamacare and socialized medicine and quickly expanded with Democratic cities' experimentation with COVID-19 digital passports, is set to go into overdrive with the introduction of central bank digital currencies. Now, if government-issued cyber monies replace the relative anonymity of physical cash, then no purchase, donation, or investment can be free from the prying eyes of the state. Combined with government control over health care and the imposition of mandatory digital IDs, the state will have created the perfect surveillance system. When all human activity is monitored and social credit scores are the norm, personal choice disappears. So fear plus dependency equals enslavement. When the state determines what you own, what you say, what you may believe, and where you may go, then you have become a slave to total state control. Terrifying citizens into compliance and forcing citizens into dependence for their survival are the hallmarks of all totalitarian regimes. And J.B. Shirk says, act accordingly. I would recommend take a good close look at what's happening in Shanghai right now as a a good uh, indicator of what this can lead to. You know, the part about uh, families, too, how, how the state is in competition with families. I wanted to share with you a commentary from Sarah Weaver. And this points out a very disturbing trend where it appears the, the nuclear family is not just becoming unfashionable, but maybe in danger of becoming obsolete if certain social engineers have their way. Sarah Weaver cautions against the dystopian future where men and women just don't want children. She says, many of the ba- most of the baby strollers my family observed on vacation in Savannah, Georgia, were not transporting babies. Instead, couples perambulated about the city with dogs. By the end of our vacation, we had counted more than 200 different dogs in strollers across the city. Seeing an actual baby in a stroller proved to be the exception, not the rule. Now she says, the U.S. birth rate has fallen by about 20% since 2007 and shows no signs of recovering. Among childless adults, 44% of those under 50 say it is not too or not at all likely that they will ever have children. That's up 37% from those who said the same in 2018. Business Insider recently interviewed eight women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s about their easy decision to not have children. She says these women all say they found having children comes at the opportunity cost of reading the paper in bed until noon on Sunday, or gallivanting around Europe, pleasures that some women find crucial to their independence and self-expression. Without children, 34-year-old Tasman Turner said, I've been able to move across the country and back again based only on my wants and needs. It's a sign of economic progress, signaling a rise in individualism and women's autonomy, the article continues. No doubt economics has a lot to do with this trend, but if this is progress... Sarah Weaver says uh, society should consider regress for a change. New York Times columnist Ross Douthat wrote in 2009, in post-feminist America, men are happier than women. A new research at the time had found that despite being more liberated than they had been 30 years ago, women were drastically less happy. Such a finding would seem counterintuitive if you believed the stories of the career-filled, well-traveled women interviewed by Business Insider. The sorts of women Business Insider profiled understand their biological clocks mean that postponing childbearing may mean foregoing the possibility of motherhood entirely. But they resolutely live in the moment. 31-year-old Brittany said, I thought about maybe regretting the decision one day, but would rather regret it later than choose to have a child now without really wanting one and resenting them for it. 
Now, Sarah Weaver says the story also notes how many modern women with children now wish their offspring did not exist. As a sign of the times, consider that a Facebook page called I Regret Having Children has 45,811 followers. She says, when I checked the page, the top post was from a regretful mother of three. These three are awful, she complained. I'm seriously considering leaving them with their dad, moving to another place, a place where I can work back on me, my mental health. A male commenter on the post validated this mother's hate toward her children. Sounds like you need a break. Children are awful soul suckers, he said. Jennifer Matthew told Business Insider she decided not to have children after watching her career-minded mother juggle work and family. Posing wine glass in hand with her dog, she says she knew from the early age of 11 that she didn't want to have children. According to that story, Jennifer attributes her decision for a childless future to her unconventional upbringing in which her father acted as the primary parent since her her mother often prioritized her high-profile career over family. But these women are unable to deny their biological desires to be mothers. Their maternal instincts are merely directed elsewhere. Now, as Business Insider points out, for some women, a career is their baby. But these same women, assuring the world that their feminist dreams have left them happy and fulfilled, will fastidiously attend to their plant babies, and no one in their lives will tell them they're fooling themselves. More than likely, they'll become one of the millions of women taking antidepressants or subjected to the myriad of adverse health effects associated with the birth control pill, a staple of modern women seeking to remain childless. Now, Sarah Weaver concludes, traveling the world and climbing the corporate ladder while fine objectives in and of themselves have not been enough to make most people as happy, as was the resolute promise of the feminist and sexual revolution. And so she says, perhaps it's time women and men gave the good old-fashioned nuclear family unit a try. Isn't it strange you can get labeled as, well, that's really old-fashioned. That sure is, you know, we're, we're on to new thinking now. It makes me think of the kid who was flexing down on, uh, on Ben Shapiro the other day, the, the mathematician and physicist who was just repeating, you know, woke talking points. Well, you know, you're just uh, you're using outdated technology to discuss gender. That's that's not even a real thing. Look, all I know is as I look at human history, and as I look at civilizations great and small and primitive and very advanced, the one common pattern that seems to have emerged in every single one of them, independent of religious belief or political persuasions, is that the stability of their societies at some level depends upon a lifetime relationship between a man and a woman who together raise offspring, create the next generation. Now, if that makes me old-fashioned or that makes me out of touch with reality, I don't know what to tell you. This much I do know. There's a lot in the world that I can't count on. There's there are a lot of times that the, the, the whole foundations of this world seem to be like sand shifting underneath my feet. The one sure place that I know that I can find refuge, even though we're far from perfect, is within the family. I look at uh, what matters as I see the life cycle play out rather with babies coming into the world, older relatives departing this life. At those times, the most important thing always comes back to family. So if you're going to invest your time and effort and moral energy in a direction... 
Family is probably the safest bet that I can think of. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to mention one of my sponsors here, Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. If you or someone you love is dealing with bulging herniated discs or the pain of neuropathy, or maybe you've been unfortunate enough to be in a car accident and suffered injuries, I'd like to encourage you to get in touch with Dixie Chiropractic. You can do this by going to DixieChiro.com. Two specials in particular I want to call your attention to. For those with, with bulging or herniated discs, Check out the $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, it's DixieChiro.com. I've already talked to listeners who have, have taken me up on this and checked them out for themselves. This is uh, particularly my listeners in southern Utah, which is where Dixie Chiropractic is located. But I provided the way to get in touch with them. If you have need, if you're dealing with pain, Dr. Ward Wagner and his staff at Dixie Chiropractic are there to help you. Well, I'm kind of excited in that uh, we are getting chickens. I believe this weekend our little chicks are grown enough that we're going to bring them home and they're going to have their own little uh, chicken lives out there in our chicken coop and chicken run. I've done this before, and I, and I, I enjoyed it. It's been a few years, though, since we've had chicks. And yet, right on cue, what is this I see in the headlines? Oh, a new and deadly form of bird flu is wiping out millions of chickens in America. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Now, my first thought was, well, looks like we got them just in time. You know, the price of eggs is going up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really scary to think, oh, no, bird flu, here it comes. But I've got an article here from Kit Knightley. This is from offguardian.org, rather, off-guardian.org. Bird flu, another phony pandemic, this time for chickens. And this is actually worth sharing because I think some skepticism is uh, is required at this point. Kid Knightley says the bird flu outbreak is not real. That should be everyone's starting point. With everything, really. Assume the media is lying and then wait for them to prove they're not. Always doubt the press. Always. Especially when the fates seem to converge and every single item in the news herds public opinion in the same direction and serves the same agenda which bird flu definitely does. Food shortages, soaring poverty, rationing, the cost of living crisis, they're all part of the Great Reset agenda. And in pursuit of that agenda over the last two years, they destroyed small businesses and wrecked the economy. They've driven truckers out of work and broken supply lines. They've started a war between two of the biggest exporters of wheat in the world and driven up the the price of petrol and natural gas. So bird flu fits this pattern perfectly. The price of poultry and eggs is set to skyrocket and just days before Easter. Now, Kit Knightley reminds us, we know they faked a pandemic in humans. You think they can't or won't do the same for chickens? Now, maybe some of you still have faith in the headlines. Maybe you still haven't developed that spidey sense that lets you know when something is total bollocks. And maybe we should make an argument lest we fall victim to the fact checkers. So let's talk evidence for a moment. First, let's talk about how the U.S. government detects bird flu outbreaks. According to an article in The Conversation, 
To detect avian influenza, the U.S. Department of Agriculture oversees routine testing of flocks done by farmers and carries out federal inspection programs to ensure that eggs and birds are safe and free of virus. Using molecular diagnostics such as polymerase chain reaction tests, that sound familiar? PCR tests, the same method labs use to detect COVID-19 infections. Huh. So the USDA does routine testing of poultry farms using PCR tests. That that remind you of anything? Second, let's talk about how world governments are handling the crisis. The mainstream media are reporting a deadly flu outbreak, the Guardian claims. U.S. officials believe nearly 24 million poultry birds, mostly chickens and turkeys, have died of flu since the virus strain was identified in February. Now, all mainstream outlets are taking that same line, reporting millions of birds dying of flu. However, the conversation article quoted above says, as of early outbreak, as of early April, rather, the outbreak had caused the culling of some 23 million birds from Maine to Wyoming. And this article in The Scientist claims again, so far this season, tens of millions of birds have died of disease or been culled. So there is some inconsistency here, especially when we don't know how many birds died of bird flu and how many were culled with bird flu. Sound familiar? Now let's try to do some simple math here to clear up the confusion. We know the press are reporting roughly 24 million poultry deaths in the U.S. We know Wisconsin farmers have culled 2.7 million chickens to stop the spread. And we know Iowa, the USA's leading producer of eggs, has culled over 13 million chickens. Well, that's already 16 million out of our 24 million, or 67% of the alleged total killed by the flu in the U.S., You understand what Kit Knightley's pointing out here? At least two-thirds of the dead birds, and potentially all of them, were killed in coals and not by the flu at all. And that's just the U.S. numbers. Other countries are culling, too. France has had two huge coals of poultry, totaling over 11 million birds. The U.K. has culled at least 2 million since October, despite detecting just 108 cases by late March. Governments are killing millions of birds, and these deaths are being blamed on the flu. So to sum up, the backbone of this bird flu outbreak, that's in quotation marks, is routine testing done using unreliable PCR tests, which can be manipulated to create false positive results. Number two, linguistic ambiguity over causes of death and unreliable reporting of casualty numbers. Number three, government overreactions, which accidentally make the problem worse. Seriously, any of this ringing a bell yet? Bird flu is just like COVID. The same people telling the same lies for the same reasons. And we all know where it goes from here. Just as with everything else, this will lead to more talk of a food crisis. France is already warning of poultry shortages. And since the U.S. is the world's biggest exporter of eggs and chicken, any disruption there has huge knock effects. The price of eggs and chicken is already going up. Just as with lockdowns, the bird flu crisis will hit small local businesses harder and faster than big pharma giants. Pharma with an F, by the way. We're already seeing reports of family farms being destroyed. Kit Knightley says they're reporting that free-range birds are more at risk from bird flu, what with being allowed to go outside and live like normal birds. So organic, sustainable, and ethical farming practices will be hit with new rules that don't apply to corporate meat factories who treat animals as inanimate objects. 
Meanwhile, this will be used to further advance the war on meat, boosting both veganism and backers of lab-grown meat. Inevitably, they're already talking about a new bird flu vaccine for people and or birds. In fact, a UK firm just announced a new bird flu vaccine for chicks just a few days ago. That's some well-timed research. Great work. So good luck, good luck being an anti-vaxxer when they make it law to literally inject all your food with spike proteins or experimental mRNA modifiers or who knows what else. And of course, if they ever need it to, the bird flu can jump from chickens to humans and we can have a brand new pandemic, just as the former head of the CDC predicted the other day. Kit Knightley says, like I said at the beginning, there is no bird flu outbreak. It's just COVID for chickens. The more building back better, just more new normal. It's all the great reset because that's all there is these days. Now, I share this with you not in the hopes that you're going to just hang breathlessly on every word and believe it all and and nod your head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This this makes perfect sense. I want you to keep that sense of skepticism and I want you to question such things. But you have to admit It is kind of strange, the pattern that is emerging there. It's not like we haven't seen it before. And yeah, I'm just conspiratorial enough that I'm thinking, wow, something like that taken to its logical ends could be used to remove yet another layer of food security for people who are in the habit of keeping small livestock. I'm thinking beyond just the chickens. I mean, it may be, well, we're sorry, but, uh, you know, as a matter of public health, (laughs) they'll catch all to justify whatever we want to do. Anyone keeping chickens at their home is going to be subject to, you know, USDA inspections or otherwise. uh, Maybe they'll just say it's so scary because we have this avian flu that uh, that we're afraid of. We're going to have to ask people to get rid of their chickens. In fact, we're going to have to come around and make sure that nobody is keeping chickens. Maybe they'll throw in some hoof and mouth disease. Oh, you're keeping a milk cow? Nope, you can't do that either. I guess what I'm saying is either way, I could see it being used as just another reason for government to come in and regulate away or take control of your ability to produce more of your own food. No, I get I that that sounds really cynical. And there's a part of me that's like, really, dude, do you do you believe that yourself? And my honest answer is I don't know. But I have to say, I think it's plausible. Given the times that we live in, given that need for absolute control, I can't rule it out as a possibility. So, you know, something for you to think out and come to on on your own. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program and its central message is to think for yourself. That's why this program exists. Think clearly, think independently. Know that we have been lied to by many of the institutions that we have trusted to tell us the truth. Well, I'm not one who believes you can't handle the truth. In fact, I believe that you are the best person 
to uh, choose to to what what you will and what you won't believe. But it's going to take a little bit of effort on your part. I'm here to help if I can. I'll provide you with the best information that I can and hopefully steer you in a direction that's productive and will will yield good, credible, timely, principled information rather than just partisan slogans being shouted back and forth. I do appreciate appreciate you being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I wanted to start this hour with uh, a talk about how we desperately need, the world desperately needs heroic individuals. And we all kind of get a picture in our heads of what that looks like. Oh, well, it must be somebody in uniform charging a machine gun nest or something. It can take that to that form. But the kind of heroism I'm talking about usually takes place, you know, out of the spotlight. It's not front page news. It's a much more individual thing, but it's desperately needed. Jacob Hornberger reminds us that authentic heroism can include, uh, can re- include identifying and confronting evil. And that's particularly true when we're confronting evil right here at home. Case in point, he says Americans have no problem identifying and confronting evil in foreign regimes. Most everyone, for example, has joined the bandwagon in condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But he says, as I point out in my new book, An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zapruder story, a big problem facing our nation is the inability of all too many Americans to identify evil within their own regime as well as an unwillingness to confront and oppose such evil when they're able to identify it. Now, he says, Dallas businessman Abraham Zapruder, the man who filmed the assassination of of President Kennedy, had an encounter with evil here at home. And he says, as I detail in my new book, his unwillingness to confront and oppose such evil, while perhaps understandable, ended up destroying the rest of his life. One thing is certain. There is no danger that Russian President Vladimir Putin will do anything bad to any American who criticizes him. That's assuming, of course, that Americans who do so stay here at home. Now, if you travel to Russia, things could get dicey, especially if they criticize Putin while visiting Russia. Thus, it's almost always safe to criticize evil within foreign regimes. But it's quite a different matter, however, with respect to evil within one's own regime. Now, it's a different story. That's because there is a significant danger that one's own government will do bad things to citizens who criticize evil within their government or evil actions committed by their government. And a good example is, once again, Russia. Most Russian citizens are standing with Putin, much as most Americans stood with their president when he ordered the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. But there are some Russians who are criticizing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Not surprisingly, Their own government is now targeting them for being unpatriotic. Jacob Hornberger says, while most every American can identify the evil in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, unfortunately, all too many Americans are still unable to identify the evil associated with their own government's deadly and destructive invasions and decades-long occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, which were no different in principle from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In fact, The U.S. government wreaked far more death and destruction in those two nations than Russia so far has wreaked in Ukraine. That's got to be a painful truth, but I think he's right. He says, on top of the U.S. invasions have been U.S. state-sponsored assassinations, kidnappings, torture, indefinite detention, sanctions, secret incarceration and torture camps, and other dark side activities that most Americans would easily condemn if they were committed by Red China, Russia, or North Korea. 
but not when they're committed by the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. Moreover, he says, all too many Americans are still unwilling to acknowledge, much less condemn, the role that the U.S. government's interventionist foreign policy played in bringing about the 9-11 attacks, which then led to the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. He says such Americans continue to hew to the Pentagon-CIA line that the 9-11 attacks were motivated by hatred for Americans' freedom and values, rather than the anger and rage arising from the Pentagon's and CIA's deadly and destructive interventionism in the Middle East. Equally important, while focusing their criticisms on Putin and his regime, all too many of the critics scrupulously avoid identifying and condemning the role that U.S. officials played in producing the Ukraine crisis through their political machinations and maneuvering through NATO, the old Cold War dinosaur that should have gone out of existence a long time ago. He says, in my new book, I talk about the White Rose, a group of college students in Nazi Germany. They were not only able to identify the evil within their own regime, they were also willing to oppose it. Most other Germans were unable to identify the evil within their own government and instead came to support the government. Others who were able to identify the evil within their own regime chose to remain silent for the obvious reason their own regime would do bad things to them, as it did to members of the White Rose. So today, he says, virtually every American would celebrate the courage of members of the White Rose. But he says, in my new book, I raise a question. If such Americans were German citizens in the middle of World War II, would they have come to the defense of the White Rose, or would they have been loyally supporting their own government, as most Germans did? It's not sufficient to identify and oppose evil in foreign regimes, is the point. In order to get our nation back on the right track, it's imperative that the American people identify and confront the evil that exists within their own regime. And he says that necessarily entails a higher level of consciousness and conscience. By seeing what Abraham Zapruder's encounter with evil here at home did to destroy his life, and by studying the Kennedy assassination itself, we can gain a deeper understanding of what we need to do to get our nation back on the road toward liberty, peace, prosperity, and harmony with the people of the world. Now, Jacob Hornberger comes out and says, look, I hope you'll buy my new book. I hope you'll put it on the top of your stack of unread books. I know I'm biased, but he says, I consider this to be the best work I've done in the 32-year history of the Future of Freedom Foundation. If you find it valuable, then he says, please recommend it to others. Also, please do not forget to leave a review on Amazon. Now, some may be willing to say, well, Brian, you've just successfully helped Jacob Hornberger sell his book. Well, if you want his book, I'd say go ahead and buy it. If you don't want it, don't buy it. But I'm more concerned with what he's saying here about identifying and confronting evil here at home. And please don't think I'm calling you out, okay, because what I'm about to say I know is going to feel like a slap in the face to some people. But just like wokesters virtue signaling about, uh, well, I don't think a person's skin color should be a reason to discriminate against them. I mean, that is such a brave thing to say in this day and age when, uh, well, pretty much everybody believes it. It doesn't require any significant investment of self or risk to self to say such a thing. Likewise, to criticize what Putin or other foreign leaders are doing doesn't require any sort of uh, skin in the game on your part. But to criticize what your own leaders are doing or to point out and call it out and oppose it, Publicly, 
knowing that they can target you? Parents standing up against grooming their children into weird sexual practices by by people who are supposed to be educating them on reading, writing, and arithmetic? You can see the difference, right? And I get it. I understand why people want to stay silent. Nobody enjoys being criticized, much less being accused of being a domestic extremist or a domestic terrorist or a racist or anything like that. I get it. Life is much easier when you're not the one being accused of, you know, having, you know, horrible motives or anything like that. But I'm very familiar with the story of the White Rose. It's one of the reasons Sophie Scholl in particular, who was one of the members of the White Rose, is is personally one of the heroes that I look to in my life for a sense of courage and a sense of purpose when I speak truth that I know is going to be unpopular. She did the same. She paid for it with her life. But she said somebody had to make a start. And she wasn't going to wait around for it to be somebody else, someone who's more qualified, someone with a better voice, someone with a bigger platform. She did what she could. And to me, that is the most powerful example of personal courage and conviction that that I can think of. So what I suggest that, yeah, your voice is needed. You need to be there to speak the truth, even if your voice is shaking. Somebody's got to stand up and point out where we are going off into the ditch. And it won't be fun. It won't be easy. There is risk involved. But I promise you, you'll be standing on the right side of not just justice and truth, but the right side of light and darkness by doing so. And you'll be in good company. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sewing and Quilting Center is located in St. George, Utah. They are one of the sponsors of my show. And if you are fortunate enough to live in southern Utah and you've been thinking, well, you know, maybe having a sewing machine would be a really good thing. It's a useful skill. Fixing and repairing your own clothes or even fabricating your own clothes, that gives you a real sense of accomplishment. I'm just, I'm not trying to be apocalyptic, but I'm thinking if it were tough to find such services or if if it were tough to, say, run out and buy clothes because of, I don't know, some hypothetical supply chain breakdown or economic upheaval, would it be nice to have those options? But I can hear you say, well, Brian, but I don't really know how to use a sewing machine or a long arm quilter or, you know, an embroidery machine or a serger or anything like that. Hey, this is where Sewing and Quilting Center can not only sell you the proper machine for what your needs are, and they really have the best selection to choose from, but they can train you how to use it. They'll teach you how to use it and not charge you for, for that training. They will fix you, fix your machine if you need it fixed. Even if you didn't buy your machine from them, they've got the technicians to keep it working. I'm just saying, as far as uh, self-reliance goes, this would be a very positive thing to have in your favor. Go talk to my friends at Sewing and Quilting Center. You can click on their website, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. See if they can help you out, because I bet they can. Well, we're starting to hear more talk about gun control, and I suppose this is just one of those things. The president was out talking about ghost guns earlier. 
Unfortunately, that wasn't the uh, press conference where the pigeon pooped on him, but I would like to buy that pigeon a cup of birdseed just, you know, for appreciation. But, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's that specter of, well, you know, crime is terrible as long as it's being committed by people who aren't, uh, you know, I don't know, black supremacists and, you know, shooting people on the subway and so forth. <laughs> they really want us disarmed. And I'm going to just uh, share with you a list here from John Miltimore about uh, some of the logical fallacies you're likely to encounter when it comes to gun control. Now, understanding logical fallacies is not going to make you, you know, infallible. You'll never be wrong again if you just understand how fallacies work or how basic logic works. But you can recognize you can recognize false arguments or you can recognize false premises or unsound premises if you're paying attention. So you won't be right all the time, but you'll be wrong a lot less often, if that makes sense. So here are some of the ways that that you'll see common fallacies used in the current debate on guns in America. First is the non sequitur, which translates as it does not follow. These are more common in casual conversation than in formal debate. So, for instance, I can't believe you didn't like The Last Jedi. You love The Empire Strikes Back, and Mark Hamill is in The Last Jedi. So it doesn't follow that all fans of the original Star Wars trilogy will like The Last Jedi just because Luke is in the movie. Now, in the gun debate, the argument sometimes devolves into non sequiturs. For example, I don't support the murder of innocents. Therefore, I don't vote Republican since Republicans often support the Second Amendment. So there's one that you'll see. It does not follow that if a person votes Republican that they support the death of children. That's... It's also guilt by association. That's a, that's another that's another kind of fallacy. Number two, the false dilemma or false dichotomy. That's the either or thing. News media are notorious for presenting public opinions or public options, excuse me, as a binary choice: do nothing or pass federal gun control legislation. So uh, this was from I believe Joe Scarborough, who said back when Trump was president. Donald Trump does nothing. Paul Ryan does nothing. Mitch McConnell does nothing. Donald Trump has proven to be a coward. He's proven to be a small man. So you can do nothing or you can do what we're telling you to do. Scarborough was echoed by Representative Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, told the president, get off his A and work with the federal lawmakers to pass gun control legislation. Now, John Miltimore points out, the reason that's a fallacy is because in reality, there are many actions individuals, communities, parents, and local governments can take to help prevent school shootings. But media reports and pundits on TV usually won't present those alternatives. It's either or. Third appeal, I'm sorry, third fallacy is the appeal to emotion. Oh, look, it's the kids from uh, the uh, Parkland shootings down in, uh, in Florida. Their goal is never again. Hear much more from Cameron Kasky, Emma for Change, David Hogg, and Delaney Tarr. Children have been featured prominently in the gun debate, both by news networks advocating gun control and even by the president himself. Why? Well, the answer is simple. As J.D. Tuseal pointed out at Reason, kids are pulled into political discussions by adults who want to trump debate and shame their opponents into acquiescence. So here's one example of uh, how... Media and people appeal to our emotions to argue their points. Now, here's another one. Weapons, ammo, limit access. You may prevent some shootings and lessen severity of others. 
Someone else says, we'll remove all access. End of story. The social experiment failed. Americans can no longer be trusted with weapons of war. And this, another person adds their voice. I choose these words carefully because I mean them sincerely. Guns are disgusting, despicable creations of human engineering, and ownership of them is creepy and disturbing. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much appealing to emotion. No mention of, well, can, can they actually be used to defend innocent life? That's not the point. What I want is right, and look at the children. Look at their sad faces. All right. Straw man is uh, fallacy number four, probably the most common fallacy in modern debate. That involves taking somebody's point or argument and reducing it to a caricature that's easily knocked over or torn apart. So a case in point can be found in a column by Jerry Adler of Yahoo. In it, Adler mocked an article written by National Review's David French, which stated that the purpose of the Second Amendment was to defend liberty from potential state tyranny. Now, Adler depicts French as defending assault-style rifles on the grounds that we might need them to fight a reprise of the American Revolution. And he invokes the image of middle-aged guys running around the woods in camel pants trying to go up against the Marine Corps. Now, French never mentioned the American Revolution, Marines, or middle-aged guys in camel pants. In fact, he explicitly states an armed citizenry would not be much use if it came to open conflict between the people and the state. But instead of directly engaging French's argument that semi-automatic rifles are a more meaningful check on state power than sidearms and shotguns, Adler created a straw man. And what's interesting is that Adler did this while admitting that French acknowledges that ordinary citizens wouldn't stand much of a chance against the 101st Airborne, and that there's little evidence that the 1994 federal assault weapons ban reduced gun violence. Here we go. Number five, it's bandwagon fallacy, also called appeal to popularity. It's born of the idea that something's right, true, or desirable just because it's popular. So take this article which appeared in Salon and featured the headline, Support for Gun Control Surges to Highest Level Ever as GOP Lawmakers Sit on Their Hands. The implication being that action should be taken because many people favor it, according to a poll. Such an action might be entirely appropriate, but the assumption that the opinion of the majority is prima facie evidence of validity That's flawed logic. And finally, we have the faulty analogy. This fallacy assumes that because two things are alike in some respects, well, they're necessarily alike in other respects. So in the gun debate, it's often common to point to Australia's 1996 gun control legislation as a model for the U.S. And it runs like this. In Australia, gun control legislation passed and gun deaths fell. Therefore, the U.S. should pass more gun legislation. But the problem as so many have pointed out, is that these nations are so different. Their legal systems, constitutions, histories, the number of guns in circulation, etc., that any comparisons or predictions in gun policy are essentially useless. In other words, it's a faulty analogy. Now, I'll have a link to John Miltimore's article. This was actually from a couple of years ago. I believe this may have been from 2018. But it's still, it's, it's aged very well because the, the wisdom here remains. And you're going to be hearing more about how, well, we've got, to, we've got to take these guns out of the hands of people for their own good, for their protection, blah, blah, blah. Look, the only thing that it's trying to protect, the only thing that such a policy could possibly protect is a political class that is trying to enforce its will against a population that it knows is fed up and is approaching the point where they will put their foot down and say no more. That's terrifying to the control freaks who sit you know, holding the levers of power.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is one of the fine sponsors of my show. I appreciate Heather. I appreciate everything that she does to make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. And if you are moving to the Intermountain West, particularly Utah or Idaho, this is where I would point you for finding a, a home loan, a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage. Talk to Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage and get the loan you need at the best rates possible. Time is of the essence for a lot of people because it's such a competitive real estate market. And that means that, uh, you know, when a home goes on the market, it doesn't sit there for weeks on end waiting for somebody to make the right offer. Usually it's snapped up and sometimes there's even a bidding war. So when you go shopping, you better know what you can afford, what you're qualified for. Heather can help you with that. Call her at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, one of the scariest things that uh, that people fear is being called racist. And it's not because they're racist, but it's because of the stigma that even an accusation can carry. The court of public opinion, why that accusation is considered proof. Well, they wouldn't have accused you if you didn't have something, you know, that was was uh, backing it up. And yet very few people can, can tell, well, what exactly did this person do or say that, that was considered racist? I think about Donald Trump. He was portrayed as, oh, the most racist president we've ever had. And yet when you press people on it, well, what exactly did he do? What exactly did he say? They didn't really want to go into specifics because if they did, it would be clear that you're just throwing out what's essentially a, a progressive cuss word and hoping that it sticks. Nevertheless, you know, nobody's lining up. Say, go ahead, go ahead, call me racist, bro. Because they, they're, they're worried it might stick just because people might think, well, you were called it. There must be something to it. Brian Kaplan has an excellent article. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. The Ironclad Argument Against Racism. I think you'll like the logic that he uses here. He says, being labeled a racist is scary. If you scour the Internet, you will find a few confessed racists. But for the most part, racism is a doctrine we ascribe to others in order to damn and ostracize them. And the strange result, while we hear endless debates about whether a person, idea, or practice is racist... We rarely hear arguments against racism itself. Arguments of the form, racism is wrong because. So suppose you wanted to construct such arguments. What would they be? How many people would start with something like, racism is wrong because it has been used to justify mass murder and slavery? True enough. But you could just as easily say equality is wrong because it's been used to justify mass murder and slavery. See any episode of revolutionary communism. Whoops. Now, he says, alternatively, or alternately, you could declare racism is wrong because all races have equal intrinsic ability. All observed performance gaps in achievement and behavior stem from oppression. Now, the obvious weakness in this argument, how could anyone possibly know this? We've never seen a world of zero oppression, so we can't verify this by direct observation. The best we can do is apply standard social science where we measure performance and then try to statistically control for oppression. Alternately, he says we could also measure performance and then try to statistically control for ability and call the residual oppression. 
yet either social science route is clearly risky. Maybe you won't find that all races have equal intrinsic ability. Maybe you'll find that some performance gaps stem from something other than oppression. And what happens to the researcher who makes such discoveries? Can testing hypotheses with an open mind transform you into a racist against your will? Well, Brian Kaplan says, fortunately, an ironclad argument against racism does exist. An argument simple enough for a child to understand, yet compelling enough for an adult to embrace. Namely, racism is wrong because collective guilt is wrong. I like that. Now, he says, the institution's been around for a long time. If a man commits murder, you shouldn't punish his son. Why not? Well, because it's not the son's fault. He's a different person than his father. And if that's wrong, it's even more wrong to punish someone because he lives on the same street or resides in the same city or practices the same religion or is a citizen of the same country. So collective guilt may be emotionally tempting, but it's intellectually absurd. Now, the one exception is when you voluntarily join a group of wrongdoers, such as the mafia. But that's not really collective guilt. It's an individual's guilt for belonging to a criminal conspiracy. I'm so trying to resist the urge to add government or various government agencies to that uh, group of wrongdoers. But, okay, urge fought down. All right, moving on. To belabor, the, to belabor the obvious, says Brian Kaplan, belonging to a race is nothing like belonging to the mafia. You're born into a race. You can't control what other members of your race do. So you should bear no liability for their actions. No matter how awfully other members of your race have behaved, you should be judged as an individual. To hold you responsible for anything they did is a grave injustice. Now, what makes this uh, argument so ironclad? Because it rests on rock-solid, micro-ethical foundations, meaning almost everyone can see that collective guilt is wrong in simple hypotheticals, such as John murdered Sally. Is it morally permissible for Sally's family to murder John's infant son in retaliation? No? Then it can't be morally, morally permissible to blame other people who share John's race either. Now, Brian Kaplan says, look, in my childhood, I heard the ironclad argument against racism frequently, but I sense that it's no longer popular. Why not? Because once you reject collective guilt, you have to abandon any notion of collectively punishing racism itself. And that's largely what the fashionable creed of anti-racism is all about. Now, he says, in the past, most whites were racist. Even today, many are. Without collective guilt, however, you have no basis for punishing whites in general. You can tell a white college applicant, we're going to discriminate against you because white people in the past discriminated against blacks. Or even we're going to discriminate against you because modern whites continue to discriminate against blacks. Instead, you would have to tailor any punishment to specific misdeeds. Ever mindful of the danger that if you stray into collective guilt, the punisher himself deserves punishment. So while the ironclad argument against racism unequivocally unequivocally condemns racism, it also bars the way to a no-holes-barred-by-any-means-necessary war against racism, which on reflection is a feature, not a bug. Listen to this line. If your road to a just society requires constant injustice, you're headed in the wrong direction. 
That's pretty, that's pretty solid. I don't think he's wrong. I think it was Ron Paul who first introduced me to the idea that racism on its face is nothing more than a particularly ugly form of collectivism. And I know I, I try to urge my, my listeners, don't, don't be known for what you're against. Be known for what you're for. But if you were to ask me, well, Brian, is there anything that you stand against? I, I would say collectivism in all of its forms. Because collectivism is always, always used to justify negating the rights of the individual. So now, now I'll flip that on its head. I stand for the primacy of the rights of the individual. As long as what that person is doing is peaceful, the majority have no right to tell them what to do or to punish them for holding incorrect ideas or even unpopular beliefs. Now, if that sounds like, well, gee, why aren't you out there trying to correct everybody? If somebody's thinking something wrong, look, man, I spent way too many days and nights. I spent years arguing with people on the Internet because someone was wrong on the Internet. And, you know, somebody's got to be out there representing for the truth. I don't argue with strangers on the Internet anymore. It's, it's, it's a complete waste of time. Instead, what I try to do is channel my energy and channel whatever I'm trying to say into something that is, is helping people better understand who they are and what they stand for, more so than just, this is what you're against. And I trust that individuals can make up their own minds as to whether this actually holds water or not. Whether this is worthwhile, whether it's something they should embrace, or, you know, something that they should discard. And if somebody says, well, I don't agree with you, am I supposed to be offended? Should I be threatened? Well, you have to. How could I possibly be wrong? Well, the point is, I may be wrong. And I'm okay if you think I'm wrong. I'm okay if you know that I'm wrong. But by the same token, I'm also okay if, 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 if you're wrong about something. Because it's not my job to force you into, you know, acquiescing to whatever it is that I'm talking about or whatever point of view I'm putting forth. How weird is it that we live in a time where that's, uh, that's kind of odd, that's, that's out of step with, with how people think about things. My worldview does not require you to agree with me in order for me to accept it as right and proper and to base my behavior and my trajectory in life on what I understand to be true. If your ideology or your worldview requires others to have to believe as you do and you're going to try and force them into believing as you do, you might want to consider whether it's a good one or not. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, I'm going to invite you, please subscribe to my show notes. Now, I've heard from a couple of people at Brian, it's not obvious where we can subscribe on your website. So if you go to thebrianheidshow.com, yes, you're going to have to click on the show notes themselves. Just pick a day, any day, scroll to the bottom of the show notes. There it is. There's the subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email. All you have to do is put in the email, which I will never sell or share with anybody else. And I'll give you a copy of the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. Also want to mention hslammo.com. That's uh, my friend Spencer Worthington. Started this company from the ground up. Built it 
and has kept it running despite, you know, considerable uh, challenges, especially in supply chain issues and so forth. He has kept things going. He's an innovative guy, creates a wonderful product, high quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. So if that's something you have need of, can I ask you, please consider purchasing from HSLAmmo.com. Put them at the top of your list. Click on their website. You'll find it very user-friendly. If you live in southern Utah, you might even run in there and see them for yourselves. Very, very simple. All right, I know I I talk about uh, getting cynical about politics as time goes on. Do you find yourself becoming more cynical? I mean, I don't watch mainstream news. Once in a while, I'll see a, a clip on the news or a clip on Twitter, which, you know, it's it's not like sitting and watching a whole newscast, but frankly, I, I can't suppress my, my gag reflex. The more I hear lies and the more I hear the gaslighting, I just, I don't want to subject myself to it. I'm just not a masochist. And I think the, the limits of cynicism are actually being pushed to the breaking point with some of the things we're expected to believe. In fact, I want to give you some examples here. The Z-Man, in a recent column, talks about the limits of of cynicism. He says, people who follow French politics are talking about the upcoming election runoff between Macron and Le Pen as a possible replay of 1981. Now, if you remember back in that election, Francois Mitterrand scored a stunning upset of incumbent President Valérie Gissard d'Estaing. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I'm sure I'm butchering it. To become the first socialist to win since the Second World War. Now, Mitterrand is ushered in a new era of French politics that prevails to this day. It's a cynical divide-and-conquer politics that serves a narrow elite at the expense of the nation. Now, like Americans, the French have been facing the problem that elections seem to have no bearing on public policy. They vote in new people and new parties, but the policies never seem to change. Macron has not been much different from Holland, who was not much different than Sarkozy. In fact, each French president since Mitterrand has followed a predictable internationalist course. And as a result, France has been swamped by immigrants and looted by international finance. So the Z-Man says it's a good reminder that elections in a democracy have consequences, but rarely in the way that people expect. Mitterrand's upset, upset victory ushered in a new brand of politics that every ambitious French politician seeks to emulate. And something similar happened in the U.S. in the 1992 presidential election. Bill Clinton represented a new generation of political leadership. <clears throat> he ushered in a new form of politics that infected both parties and the political mechanism upon which they rely. And his point is that, like in France, American politics is deeply cynical now. Elections are viewed with disdain by the politicians. It's something they must endure so they can get on with what they view as the important parts of politics. And the important part of politics is advancing an agenda that serves the narrow interests of the managerial elite. This is why elections have no bearing on public policy. Perhaps you've noticed the office holders may change and the parties may swap positions, but the elites never change. And he says, this is the source of the growing hostility the political classes of the West have for the people they theoretically represent. And Macron is a fine fine example. He's in trouble politically because he carries himself like a man who is doing doing the French people a favor by paying attention to them. Now, not long ago, he said that uh, you are not French if you do not follow his rules with regard to COVID. 
He joked about using the administrative state to torment those who question his policies. Now, the Z-Man says there is, sin- there is that cynicism at the heart of politics in the modern West. No serious leader thinks such things, much less says them out loud, if he has any regard for the people he claims to lead. But more important, no serious leader acts this way if he thinks the opinions of the voters matter. When the game is rigged, or at least seems that it's rigged, well, then it no longer makes much sense to pretend public opinion matters. This is the truth of the cynical politics of the modern West. And in America, this is most evident in the, in the concept of messaging. In modern America political jargon, messaging is a form of crowd control. So the crowd is the mass media, which takes its cues from the inner party. The emails go out, the spokesmen give pressers, and this is what shapes the daily narrative in the press. This is then supposed to herd the public in the direction of the official policy. Good polls confirm to the political class that their message is working. Here's a good example of this. Chief Messenger Jen Psaki. Note that she struggles. It's a video that he links to. Note that she struggles to read the catchphrase of the day. It turns out that saying Putin price hike out loud sounds rather silly and childish, even to someone without a soul. The expectation is the official media organs will use the phrase while reporting on the inflation numbers and the general narrative will be that the cause of inflation is Putin. Democrats probably plan to campaign on the slogan, Putin price hike, this fall. Think about the cynicism that's on display with that. Saki knows that what she's saying is a lie. Everyone in the room knows it's a lie. Further, she knows that no one thinks what she's saying is anything but a lie. The stenographers in the press pool know that she knows that they know she's lying. When they work on the official narrative at their respective media organs, they will know they are participating in the lie. So in other words, everyone knows everyone is lying, but they keep lying. That's only possible in a deeply cynical system populated with people motivated by malice toward the public. The people running the global economic war resent that they have to pretend to care about public opinion. They can barely contain their loathing for the people outside the castle walls. Shark-eyed dingbats like Jen Psaki exist because she's actually what passes for a friendly face in this system. And even she can barely conceal her contempt for the public she's addressing. The Z-Man says French political observers suspect this election is signaling signaling the end of the cynical politics ushered in by Francois Mitterrand. Cynicism is an effective short-term strategy in politics, but eventually it runs into the Lincoln limit. That's the old line about fooling all of the people all of the time that's attributed to Lincoln. It was also a popular advertising slogan in the 19th century. This is appropriate given that the cynical politics of this age is basically just a sales campaign organized by fraudsters. So his point is that we may be seeing similar signals here in America. He says the cynical politics of the Clinton machine gave us a degenerate, Bill Clinton, a simpleton, George W. Bush, and a vacuous airhead, Obama, as president, all with the claim that these are accomplished men. If not for Trump, the fourth in that series would have been the wife of the degenerate. Now we're being sold a mumbling vegetable as the most popular man in history. And he says Joe Biden may be the limit 
of the cynical post-Cold War politics. Yeah, I, I'm not much for being lied to. And I'm especially not much for, for just sitting there watching someone lie to my face and pretending like, okay, that's what we're supposed to believe for today. This is one of the many reasons why I don't watch mass media. We were actually going through a list of, uh, you know, subscriptions. Okay, we've got Netflix, we've got Hulu, we've got, you know, a couple of different things here. Do we really want to keep those things? And and I, I made the plea, I was unsuccessful, but I made the plea to my wife and family, maybe what we should do is let all of those subscriptions go and read more books. I know. That's like throwing a big wet blanket right over the whole family. What? How are we ever going to watch, you know, reruns of Criminal Minds or... Or whatever else it might be. NCIS. My my daughter, for some reason, has really been into these shows lately. But without uh, flexing too hard here, I'll tell you, I watch so much less TV. Less TV now than I ever have in my life. And while I'm not reading as many books as I would like to be reading, I'm trying to, to do what I can to bolster my understanding of the world and, and not just, you know, try to hide from it or escape into entertainment or something like that, but I'm trying to actively look for ways to engage with people in a way that gives more purpose to my life than just killing time until it's time to go to bed. I hope that doesn't sound too weird, but for me, this is a stress management tool. It also helps keep me focused on what really matters, which it turns out these days is a lot harder than it sounds, as in it takes real effort. This is The Brian Hyde Show.